Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Keep it up, keep it up. I don't even know how to follow that. I'm about to really disappoint you. If you don't know me, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm so glad to be up here and talking this week. We've had a great month talking uh, this series we're in called Breakthrough. And so whether you're here joining us in our service today or you're watching online, thank you for being a part of what God is doing through this church and his people called Sunridge Community Church. You can be seated, and I just want to pray as we get started. God, thank you for gathering your church here in this building, on this campus, as we gather in different places uh, in our community and even online. We just ask that your Holy Spirit would meet with us during this time. And that you would be our teacher and you would open our hearts and our minds, not just to the things that we can learn, but the things that can go deep into our hearts and change who we are for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So thanks a lot. Great to have you guys. Um, I am going to do something different today. I'm going to stand because I have a lot to say and I need my notes right in front of me. Before I get started, I just want to... um, invite all of you to our first night, which if you don't know what that is, a week from today, next Sunday night, I know it's over the holiday weekend, but we're going to be gathering here uh, to kick off our Advent season, which is a time where we will talk about and look forward to the coming of our Lord. And our theme this year is Jesus Stay With Us. And so I don't know if you guys can remember but uh, there was this same thing called the pandemic not too long ago. And uh, this time last year, we couldn't even gather in this space. And so for me, when the church gathers together, whether it's on Sunday morning or in some of these other ways, it has become much more precious to me to be with the church because we went a long time without being able to do that. Can you relate to that? Yeah. So I know that life is busy But I really want you here. I want you to be a part of what God is doing as we begin teaching through the Gospel of Luke. And we'll tell you more about that as that uh, time comes up. So let me ask you something. What is your favorite underdog sports movie? Favorite one of all times? Rudy. I have that down. I have Rudy. How about Remember the Titans? How about Sandlot? My favorite? Miracle. I mean, you know Miracle. Awesome. Got to watch it. It's the story of the 1980 American Olympic hockey team, and they won the gold medal against all odds. So all these are stories, and we love them. Uh, They're about an underdog's determination that led to a victory against all odds against them. And you know your Bible is an underdog. It always has been. Bookies in the first century bet against it. Everything was stacked against 
us having the Bible today. It shouldn't have survived all the obstacles, the resistance, and the downright, downright attacks on its existence. There were destructive environmental conditions. There was human resistance, persecution. You think about the inability to coordinate the copying of a document, the inability to mass produce originally, the hoarding of the scriptures that, made, that happened century after century and then the flood of counterfeits. But here it is, your remarkable Bible, and I have a few versions here, um, which are a little different. We're going to talk about that today. I have a new international version of a King James version, and I have a U version. How many of you use U version? Yeah, so this is a Bible too. My phone is now a Bible, and these Bibles, the words of God, have broken through all the odds. And yet the determination that was involved in that wasn't just human strength of character. It was determined by God. You might even say that it was predetermined. You know, the apostle Peter said this about the scriptures as they were coming into existence. 1 Peter 1.23, he said, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. What does that even mean? How did that happen? And how has God been involved and seeing that these documents that we have right here, in whatever version they come in, were imperishable. How were they preserved? This month, we've been in a series that we're calling Breakthrough, and we're in part three today. And we've seen how God has been trying to break through into human history through creation, through the spoken word of the prophets, through the written word of the scriptures, through the resurrection, as Jed talked about last week, and through the church that is built upon the resurrection. And today, I want to talk about how the Bible that we hold today has broken through all the odds stacked against it. It is imperishable. It is the living and enduring Word of God that has been preserved through the centuries so that it could, God could break through to you and me. But before we jump into that, I want to give us a little pop quiz. You didn't know you're going to get a quiz today. You couldn't even study for this. And uh, if you have a note sheet, there are five sections on there that show true and false. So I'm going to ask you five questions. And I want you to mark them if you have a piece of paper or just kind of think about your answer if you don't. Okay, here's the questions. Number one, true or false? The, bi the word Bible comes from the same Greek word as barbell. Thus, in the first century, the Bible was called the Bible because it was such a heavy document. True or false? Number, well, don't answer. Just take, you don't want anyone cheating off you. I'm not sitting next to you trying to make sure my grades will let me play. Okay, so number two, uh, true or false? The Bible you have is the same Bible as was used in the first century. True or false? Just mark it down. Number three, true or false? Archaeological discoveries have recovered some of the actual original manuscripts that were handwritten by the Bible authors. Number four, the authors of the Bible sat down and wrote each book in its entirety in one sitting. And then number five, true or false, the Bible tells a story of how God is breaking through into human history with far more 
than written words? These are the questions that I'm going to answer today. So let's see how you got started, and I'm going to hang our thoughts today on each one of these true or false questions. So number one, is the Bible called the Bible because it's the same word as barbell, because it's so heavy? That's false. I totally made that up. It is true that if you had the Bible bound together in the first century, it would be quite heavy. But the English word Bible comes from the papyrus or biblos reed that was used to make scrolls or first, the first books that it was written on. And so, because the pages were on biblos, they started referring to the first books as Bibles, as biblos. But the writings of the Old Testament and the New Testament became so significant and revered that they became known as the book or the Bible. There you have it. Question two. The Bible you have is the same Bible as was used in the first century. True or false? It's false. Actually, they didn't even have a Bible, not, not as we know it. At the earliest, the New Testament was only beginning to be written about the mid first century, and most of it quite later. So what did they have in the first century? They had the Old Testament. They had the Hebrew Scriptures. So that's super important when we think about how God has used the Word that we talk about to break through to people. And it's super interesting when you think about some of the Scriptures we read that are in the context of the first century church. Consider this very often quoted verse Acts 17, 11. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. How many of you you're familiar with that verse? You've heard that before. Okay, how many of you just aren't going to answer? So when you read that verse, is your picture of like a first century Christian sitting down with a cup of coffee and having their devotions in a quiet place with their Bible? Well, they couldn't because they didn't have a Bible. What were they studying then? The Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And they were comparing what Paul and the other apostles said to their Old Testament Scriptures. And this is creating a huge consternation for Christians in the first century because most of what Paul and the other apostles uh, are preaching at this time is in conflict to them in their minds with their own holy scriptures, what they thought the Old Testament was saying. Remember, the Pharisees rejected Jesus because he said that he was fulfilling their scriptures. So they, so they didn't get it. And so they were constantly comparing, probably often to debate about these things. So at the same time, the apostles are using their own Hebrew scriptures to show them the gospel and to preach Christ. And as Jed noted last week, their authority, the authority of the apostles came from the resurrection. At first, remember, all they have is a verbal gospel. They know of Jesus. They've heard of the resurrection. And you can see this reflected even like some of the earliest 
documents that we have from the New Testament, like in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it says, We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. And we read that thinking of the New Testament scriptures, but that is not what Paul is saying to them. Because remember that at least at first, the apostles are arriving in these cities and towns, and they are preaching Jesus from the Hebrew scriptures. And as they speak, what Paul is saying is the early church understands their verbal words, the things that they said with their mouths, to be equal to scripture or the word of God. So the first century church had the words of the apostles, and then writings begin, what we know as the Bible. So number three, archaeological discoveries have recovered some of the actual original manuscripts that were handwritten by Bible authors. True or false? It's false. Ooh. All right. Okay, put on your thinking caps here with me. Maybe this is a, a word game or something, but scholars call these original manuscripts the things that, that either Mark or Luke or Paul actually wrote with their hand or with their helper. They call them autographs or original autographs. And we don't have any of those today. We have copies, and we have a lot of them. And we're going to talk about how those copies make their way through history. But first we need to talk about, like, how was the Bible written? Those original books and letters, how was the Bible first composed? And to walk us through how these original writings by the apostles, how they come forward to this, I want to hang our thoughts on four words. I'm going to put them up on the screen right now. There's composition, then we're going to talk about copies, canon, and consolidation. Now, that's not original with me. I adapted it from one of the resources on the back of your note sheet, but I really like the alliteration, so I used it. Alliteration means every word begins with the same letter, and preachers kind of love these little ways of doing things. So, these four words or concepts, they merge together and, and, uh, and make part of the story of how your Bible comes into being. And it's, it's, a, it's an amazing story. But as we go through it today, um, you need to know the true story about the Bible, not a mythological Bible, because the truth is even more compelling. So let's talk about the composition of the Bible. How was the Bible written? So, in your mind, is the, was the Bible's origins, was it human or divine? Turn to your neighbor and make a guess. Human or divine? Go ahead, just say human or divine. So, which is it? The answer is yes. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are still with me because we're totally nerding out today. So, hang with me. I don't have a good football story or fire department story to tell you, but we're going to like, we're really going to crank through some information today. So what does it mean to believe that the Bible is God's divine word to God's people? Does, does it require that we believe that these, these books fell from heaven? And, and most of us, we, 
We want to make the Bible either human or divine. But the Bible was composed through human and divine means. I'm going to explain that. If you're Christian, that shouldn't be so worrisome to you because you already believe something else or someone else was fully human and fully divine, right? Which is Jesus, right? So it's the same with the Bible. The Bible, as it was written, was written with the inspiration of God, right? But it was also written by human beings with their hand, who each of them have personality, they have unique vocabulary, they have their own literary style, and they have a specific human intention for writing what they wrote. And then the Bible has been preserved by God, as Peter tells us, it endures forever, right? God did that, but human beings protected it. They hid it. They carried it to other regions. They copied it with their own hands, and they interpreted it and translated it. Here's what the Bible says about how it was written in, for, in 2 Peter 1.21. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes we read that to say it's like a golden tablet story, that somehow this Bible writer went into a trance and the Holy Spirit dictated to them what to write down. Other people have a view that the Bible's more like, uh, you know, like uh, a book of rules, and God was just intending to give us the rule book, the standard operating procedures. And for others, you just, you just believe that the whole thing is a myth, and it was concocted by some old men that got away in a room and just said, you know, we're going to start a big story. Well, none of that is true. But all of that affects how we read the Bible. And honestly, this is why so many Christians, especially young Christians, when they go off to college, your kids, um, they start to reject the Bible because they realize later that some of their thoughts about how the Bible was composed no longer holds water. And this is where we get into squishy ground for some people. And in our efforts that we want to defend the Bible, uh, we create narratives that, um, about its existence that aren't supported by facts. So some people just say, well, you should never question the Bible. You should just read it without thinking and then just believe it. But actually, the Bible was written to make us think. These narratives that are in the Bible, we're supposed to think deeply about the things that are in it. And one of the tragedies that is happening today in the church is we, we shut down questions. You're not allowed to ask questions. And that's the very thing that we're supposed to be doing when we read the Bible. I love what Peter Enns says, that like in an environment where you're not allowed to ask questions, it's like holding beach balls underwater. And eventually, you can't hold them all. Rather, it's much healthier to bring those beach balls to the sur surface and talk about the questions that we have. I mean, after all, don't forget one of the best stories in the Bible is about a guy who wrestled with God, right? If you don't have questions about your Bible, then you're probably not actually reading your Bible. 
And we have so much information. We live in the best age ever to understand the scriptures. So let's talk a little bit more about how the Bible was composed. Number four, the authors of the Bible sat down and wrote each book in its entirety in one sitting. True or false? That's false. The Bible was composed by a variety of authors over about a 1,500-year time span. Not that it took that long for a person to write it, but that's the time period in which it's written. So the Old Testament, about 1,000 years, and clearly it was a process in creating the Old Testament. And a lot of its parts were written over many years and sometimes by more than one author. In fact, your Old Testament goes through different editions, even individual books. The first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch, and they're attributed to Moses. But clearly, Moses didn't write every word that is in the Pentateuch. Let me give you an example. The death of Moses is recorded in Deuteronomy. Look in Deuteronomy 34, 5. I'm going to put the verse up. And, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Now, clearly Moses didn't write those words. Yeah, how can he write about his own death? So, who said it? Who, who, who wrote that? A lot of scholars say Joshua, but, but we don't know. But it wasn't Moses. It was added later, and it could have been much later. When it comes to your New Testament, the New Testament was written over a time span of about 100 years. Remember, at first, all they have at first is an oral tradition, the preaching of the apostles. But then, some of the first of the New Testament that is distributed among churches are Paul's letters uh, around 50 A.D. And the Gospels, the first Gospel isn't written until around 70 A.D. Mark was the first, and then Matthew and Luke come next. And it's obvious that Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel as a source as they wrote theirs. We'll talk about that in our gospel as we go through the gospel of Luke. And John's gospel was the last to be written around 100 AD. Each one tells the story of Jesus's life in a consistent manner, but each has a, a unique vantage point and is written with its own unique purpose and agenda. Some of the New Testament authors even received assistance. You know, we talked about this when we went through uh, uh, our series on 1 Peter just recently, 1 Peter 5.12, Peter said, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you. And remember that we, we learned a big word, amanuensis. Silas was Peter's secretary. He also assisted Paul, if you read uh, some of the other letters that Paul wrote. So what was his role? What did Silas do for Peter? Did he just dictate? Uh, did he just take dictation from Peter, most scholars think not. It's not likely because the letters that are attributed to Peter are some of the most eloquent Greek of the day. And Peter was a simple fisherman. So when we, when we read the New Testament, we need to remember that its composition and its original autographs was a process and it has both human and divine origins. And we don't have any of those originals. We have copies. So how do those autographs make their way into the Bible today? 
through copies. Here's the good and amazing news. In all of antiquity, the Bible has no rival in how it was meticulously copied. In all of antiquity, the Bible has no rival in the number of copies available. There are tens of thousands. Again, this is God intervening in the world and using human intervention. So that today, the Bible is the most reliable ancient document in all of history. You know, the copiers of the Old Testament were called scribes. You may be familiar with that if you read through the Gospels. You see them mentioned. Uh, Scribes were experts. They were highly educated. And their entire job was to copy Scripture and to interpret it. And remember, they argued with Jesus a lot. So they knew the Scripture. I mean, how would you like to argue with Jesus? This was a really prestigious career to have to be a scribe. And it was extremely demanding. To say they were meticulous about copying the scriptures would be an understatement. They constantly went over and over the documents as they transcribed them. And they counted, when they would complete a section, they would count paragraphs, they would count words, and they would even count letters. So can you imagine, you're a scribe and you come home at the end of a day and your wife greets you, she's cooking dinner and she goes, how was your day today, honey? And he says, it was a really hard day. I finished Leviticus and I'm three letters off. I had to trash trash the entire month's work and this isn't going to go well on my annual evaluation, right? So how does the Bible break through into human history? It starts off as a direct associate of an authorized author arrives in a town or a city with this manuscript. And although at first it's just one, it's read and studied together by that community, and then copies start to be made. But you know, early on, those copies as the church goes forward, they begin to be hoarded by church leaders. And as history progresses and copying systems are utilized, the scriptures are intentionally withheld from laity. And you you ask why the positive version is that people can't read, documents are expensive and rare, they don't have ability to mass produce. But a negative version would be that it was all about power and control, and only the church leaders could interpret the scriptures. So as a lay person, you were just told what the Bible said and what it meant. And so for many centuries, many, many centuries, a normal person had very little exposure to this, to a copy of the Bible. And then the 1400s come, and, a print, and the printing press is developed. And again, this is a way God breaks through with human intervention. And then along comes a guy named William Tyndale. Here's Bill. Here's a picture of him. That's William Tyndale. How many, you heard his name before? Okay. William Tyndale created the first English translation of the Bible in 1524. And what's unique about that or like interesting is it was uh, forbidden at that time to translate or possess a Bible that was in English in England. 
And the penalties were really stiff if you violated this law. So in 1536, William Tyndale was strangled and then burned at the stake. His body was burned at the stake because he translated the Bible into English. Tyndale's Bible, though, becomes the biggest source for the first King James Bible in 1611. So there are lots of other names in history that I could just click through. And you'd, some of them would sound familiar, maybe some not. But these are human beings that were so significant in giving this to us. God used them to give us the Bible. And I'm only scratching the surface. In fact, like in this, the, these are versions, but you have you version in here. We talked about that earlier in your phone. Do you know that, that ver, all those versions of the Bible and all that... All those reading plans and study plans, do you know that was created by a church for free? That's why this church, this app is free, by Life Church, Craig Rochelle, lead pastor. And they gathered their experts and invested tons of money and time and hours into creating this free app that makes the Bible so available to us. Then how do we know with all these copies? that have been made over the centuries. How do we know the right books were chosen? Is there anything in here that, that shouldn't be in there? Or is there something that should be in that isn't? And if you really want to geek out on this, if you're not geeking out already with me, some of you are like coloring, you've given up already, just tell the fireman's story and sit down, Britt. Um, but if you really want to geek out, on the back of your notes is a resource list. One is for reading. It's the simplest book I could find on how we got the Bible. It's a book by Sailhammer. And then there's a couple of things you can listen to as you drive, uh, if you have a commute or something. And, and that's uh, with Tim Mackey, and he gets totally into the detail. So if you want to, you should do it. But obviously, we don't have any, anyone around today who was there for the transition as the Bible comes together. And so we have to be kind of like a detective that we piece together all the clues. But the cool thing is all the clues are right there in front of us. It wasn't like a bunch of church leaders got together one day and said, you know, I vote this, I vote that. But there was debate and there was discussion about what, what goes forward as Scripture. So first, when it comes to the Old Testament, let's talk about that. We accept the Old Testament as Scripture because Jesus did. Jesus is often quoting the Old Testament, and he gave this unqualified endorsement of it in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. And he said, I'm the fulfillment of that law. So that's, that's why we stand confidently on the Old Testament. But for choosing the books of the New Testament, we use this word, canon which means principle or standard or rule. And this is how the different books of the Bible were decided upon. As specific to the Bible, canon means not just the completed Bible. We talk about this as the full canon of Scripture, but it was also the standard that created it. And there were really three criteria for the canon. Number one was apostolic origin. We've, I'm just going to touch on this that you don't even have to fill it in. It's already in your notes because we've talked about this before. Um, authors that were accepted into the Bible had to be uh, either 
an associate of Jesus or a very close associate of someone else who was. Remember, Jesus called the 12 apostles. They are sent ones. And so if they're sent by Jesus, then their writings are going to be reliable. But that wasn't the only criteria that was used. It was also universal acceptance uh, by uh, Christian communities. And that was important because as, as uh, history moves forward, you have different books being accepted in different regions. And yet, what the early church fathers did as they debated this is they found the books that were accepted by all of the Christian communities. And then the last criteria was it had to be consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So again, do you see how there's a divine origin and protection of the Bible, and there's also a human one? The earliest attempt to attempt a canon close to what we have here today, as far as the New Testament, was in the second century in Rome by someone called Marcion. He was a Turkish business, businessman and church leader. By the 4th century, Athanasius publishes the first list of the 27 books that we call the New Testament. And we actually even have copies of the Bible from the 4th century. The earliest are on papyrus or scrolls. Remember, like, you picture it like, like, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. But by the 4th century, they're starting to put them in what is called codex form, which means they're starting to put them together more like a book with pages and bound by leather. And uh, there are two that are most significant. One is Codex uh, Vaticanus, which has been in the Vatican for centuries, and it dates to the late 300s. And then there's Codex Sinaiticus, which was discovered in the mid, I mean, discovered in 1844. But it was written in the mid 300s. It was put together in the mid-300s, and it was found by um, an individual named Tischendorf in 1844 in St. Catherine's Monastery, which was like right at the foot of Mount Sinai. So think about that. Well, here's a picture. Let me show you a picture. There's Codex Sinaiticus. There it is, all the way from the mid-300s, bound together. It's a good portion of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament. And this is known as the oldest Bible in the world. It has tremendous influence on the Bible, your modern Bible, that you have today. So if you, you guys still with me? Slap your neighbor. So the Bible was composed. Some of you are really looking forward to that. Composed. Then it was copied. And then it was canonized. So what about all the other discoveries, even some that are pretty recent? How does that affect the Bible? And that's our fourth word, consolidation. And by consolidation, I mean it's like putting stuff together as, as other things come up. So over the centuries, the Bible continues to be examined and scrutinized and debated and even recently edited based on the latest discoveries. Each, each time there's a discovery, it's compared to what we already have, and it's scrutinized and researched, and um, sometimes adjustments are made, and sometimes not. We're consolidating, constantly consolidating 
what we gain when other discoveries are being made. For instance, in 1896, the Gospel of Mary is discovered. In 1945, the Gnostic Gospels are found in Egypt. In 1946-47, the Dead Seas are, the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered. You, you know who found those? Some teenage uh, Bedouin uh, shepherd boys. That's who found it. Uh, and in the 1970s, the Book of Judas services. So once the canon was decided, once we have these 27 books in the New Testament, it doesn't mean, it didn't mean that the shape of the Bible was done and over. Work continues, and the texts continue to be developed based on the latest discoveries, even the Bible that you hold in your hand. I'm going to give you an example, okay? I bet many of you, you guys know the Lord's Prayer? But yeah, okay. I bet a lot of you can quote it. I first heard this prayer at football games when I was on a team. And we would always gather together, and we would pray. The coach would pray, and we would say it together, the Lord's Prayer. At the time, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. I just thought it was something that we said. And, uh, but I want to show you differences from two versions. I have two versions here. I'm going to put them up on the screen. So the NIV in Matthew 6, 13 says, and least not in temptation, but delivers from the evil one. And in the King James Version, it says, and least not in temptation, but delivers from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So which is the version you prayed? The second one. I bet if you're my age, you prayed the longer one because we grew up with the King James Bible. Actually, I always thought the prayer ended with, okay, let's go and kill him. But that was something my coach added on, and that has not made it into the Scripture yet. So what's going on here? The King James Version was the English Bible for literally hundreds of years, right? It's amazing. It's a beautiful document. I love the way it flows. And, I, and because when I became a Christian, that was basically all that was available. It wasn't written in stone, and it, wasn't, it was actually a book, so I'm not that old. But um, I've memorized so many verses from that, from, in that way, and I can't get them out of my head. So a lot of these and thou's come out when I'm quoting Scripture. But it was based, the King James Version, was based on later versions or later copies. And, uh, and of all the manuscripts that we have today, the majority of them match the King James. That's why it's called the received text or the majority text. But from the time that the King James Bible was written, 1611, when it was first published, if you fast forward about 150 years, the Middle East opens up. And if you just look back at the list of the discoveries that I've already shown you, uh, in the 1850s, archaeologists are discovering all kinds of manuscripts all over the place from different regions. And, and many of them are earlier versions, like Codex, Codex Sinaiticus. So the NIV, here's the difference, is translated from the earliest known copies that were discovered after the King James. So when you look at that, what do you think happened? For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Most scholars think that that was a liturgy um, or a part of a hymn that a scribe at one point added to it. 
And were they being sneaky and just trying to get, you know, like this is going to be great in the future for football teams to pray. It's going to be a nice ending. No, they're just trying their best to copy Scripture. And, and a lot of these copies we have have all these comments and like, you know, critiques of different sections. It isn't just here's the Bible. They're making comments in the columns and, on the, and in the margins. And so at some point, that one just kind of moved over. Should that shake you? No. It shouldn't shake you. It should be the opposite because, number one, you should be amazed at how, how remarkably little that happened considering the early copying process, people writing it down. And it shouldn't shake you because we have so many copies today to compare to. And so we can be like detectives who follow these clues. And if you just look at your Bible, no modern Bible hides these discrepancies. It's in your notes. It'll tell you. This one doesn't appear here. It does there. And so what happened is that, and this, this became a debate. It's still an ongoing debate among some Christians. Which, which is more reliable, the one that we have the most copies of? or the earliest copy of. And so your modern version of the Bible from the 1970s on with the NIV um, is written from the earliest copies. Will there be more discoveries? Maybe. Probably. I hope so. Because each time it corroborates what we have in such, such an amazing way and because there's been so much research that goes into this, if there's an adjustment that, that, that needs to be made, it can be made. See, the problem isn't that we have too little to work from in, in having a Bible. We have so much. We may have too much. I don't think that you could have too much. But. So the Bible is the biggest literary event in all of history, in all of the world. It is the most reliable ancient document in existence. The process is not a secret, how we got the Bible. And we can compare and contrast at moments in time what was happening and where there might be a transition or, or a comma instead of a period or a phrase added. There's no magic. There's no conspiracy. We have all this history and scholarly work. We see the divine and the human intervention. We see God breaking through to us. So fifth, last question. The Bible tells a story of how God is breaking through into human history with far more than written words. True or false? True. This is the only true statement. This next part I want to share with you, I got from uh, a hero of mine, Tim Mackey, so it's not original with me, but I really wanted to share it with you. What is, what is the first mention in the Bible that someone should write something down as Scripture? The first time God tells somebody to write something down. It's in Exodus 17. Nope, it's even before that. Because that's in chapter 20. But in Exodus 17... Uh, the nation of Israel has escaped Egypt, and they, and get, they get in this battle with the Amalekites. 
And so uh, Moses tells him to go to war, to go battle, and he takes his staff and he holds it over his head. And, and as long as he holds that staff up, the Israelites prevail. And if his arms start to drop, they start to lose the battle. So Moses is getting on in age. So Aaron and Hur, um, they, they help him hold this up. In fact, at one point, he has to sit down on a rock even. But they keep helping him hold that, and uh, they're victorious. And God rescues them in that crucial battle. And then in Exodus 17, 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. It tells you a little bit about the purpose of the Bible and why they wrote things down. Because God here is telling a human being to write something down for a reason. The first time God directs a human to write something down is to record God rescuing his people. It's not the first time that he's rescued them, but it's the first time he said, I want you to write something down. So in your Old Testament, if you step back just a little bit, what you see is a story of how God is constantly rescuing a family, a people, a nation, and many times an undeserving people. And it tells us a story of God's intent to restore them to himself. And God uses those stories, his words, to break through to humanity, the earliest of humanity, and the Israelites. Now I'm going to ask the band to come up, because in the New Testament, who is the New Testament about? That's not a trick question. You know, I know you guys are afraid to answer now, right? It's about Jesus, right? And what did Jesus say about his coming? He said, I have come to seek and save the lost. He said, I am come to rescue people, to seek them and to save them. Not from a neighboring tribal enemy, but from something far worse. Death and sin and the evil one. In fact, at the birth of when the birth of Jesus is announced by an angel to Joseph, he says of Mary that she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from his sin. And then later, the apostle Paul writes in Romans 7, he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God. He answers his own question. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's the thing. God has been using his word to tell us century after century how he is breaking through to rescue us. The story of this breakthrough has been miraculously composed, copied, canonized, and consolidated through his intervention through the centuries. God did it. And he also used humans in the process. He used their bravery, their determination, their resourcefulness, their intelligence, their ingenuity. Human beings, just like you and me. And because he did, and because he continues to do so, we have this. We have the Bible. It's a remarkable document. 
It was an underdog. It continues to be an underdog. But it's going to survive. And it's going to tell the story into history, however far it goes. It's going to tell the story of God's desire to rescue humanity from the thing that destroys us, our own sinfulness. Now, I can't tell you, I can't make you believe the Bible. But you have so much information. You have so much to stand on with the Bible. And I, I just wonder if there isn't somebody that's here today, and it's like, you, you struggle with these things. Amen, Ron. You, you, you have questions about the Bible. That's fine. You're supposed to have them. But you have all of these resources to dig in so that you can get reasonable confidence to stand on what is true, that God desires to have a relationship with you. And by simple faith, by placing your faith in Christ, that, in, that relationship begins. We're going to celebrate what God did later in our service today by, through communion. If you're on the fence, if you're, if you're like, you know, you don't know, or it's like use some of these resources. Email me. I love talking with people about the realities of the Bible. And if you're a Christian, with everything that God has done miraculously and through human beings that have sacrificed and, and been so determined to bring the Bible to you, what should you do with it? Read it. Read it. It's a precious, precious document. So when you think about everything that God has done to bring that word to you, man, don't take it for granted. Don't let it collect dust on your shelf. Don't just use it as a paperweight on your coffee table or as a coaster, read it. Because in it is the story of how God loves each of us. With that in mind, would you stand and let's worship together what God has done for us. Thank you, Sunridge. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.